Hello and welcome to Autodidacts Anonymous. My name's Matt and I'm an autodidact. And my name is Huddo and I too am an autodidact. That's nice projection, Huddo. I don't think you need to project that much. That's fine. I'm not sure if I can keep that up. <laughs> I'll descend to muttering shortly. First impressions do count though. <laughs> so today's an exciting day because it's our final uh, episode on What's his name? <laughs> Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens, Indeed. A Brief History of Humankind. We've reached the end. Yes. And I like to start off by just saying who we are and what we like to do. So mm -hmm. if you want to just uh, quickly do that in five uh, seconds or less. Yeah, well, uh, Matt suggests. We, we have these conversations anyway as friends. All right, we... time's up. So now... Okay. <laughs> <I'm> joking. <laughs> we, uh, we like looking at the big picture questions, and Matt's uh, very much a history buff. Um, so we've had good conversations. Matt suggested it might be good if other people were allowed to listen in on some of our stuff. And you jumped at the opportunity because you love that kind of thing, Hello. Well, I did. Um, now, we do try to clean it up a bit for listeners because <laughs> when Matt and I are together, we can digress in many directions. Yeah, into, we... into, sometimes into fistfights. <laughs> well, and so that's also one of the reasons we picked books like Sapiens because it keeps us on a, yep. a course. Yeah, no, well said. And I also would say um, I, think, I, I think we're, we're armchair historians, philosophers, Scientists and economicists. Those two, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and and philosophers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that's what we do. But if you've been listening to us, you probably already know that already. So today, a very quick summary of the book because um, um, Harari's put in an afterword, which is only a page long. Yeah. So I want to quickly get through that. And yep. then I believe that you want to... Uh, you want to drive, which is I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm very afraid of. Indeed, yes, impossible questions coming up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm afraid and of. And no chance of any marks. I'm not as good at thinking on my feet as you had, so I'm a bit, I'm a bit worried. Um, so to summarise the book, essentially in the past seventy thousand years, Homo sapiens has transformed itself from an insignificant animal in a corner of Africa to master of the entire planet. Mm. You could say, or Harari. Uh, has said that it, we stand on the verge of becoming a god. Indeed. And the reason he says that is because we're on the cusp of discovering not only eternal youth, but also divine abilities such as creation and destruction. Indeed. Uh, but can we be proud of our legacy? And Harari's a bit of a pessimist on this front, Hutto. He doesn't think we, we, we can. I have to agree with him. You know, we may have taken over the planet, but I'm not sure it was a good thing for the planet. Mm, well, yeah, I think you're right there. So we've done many amazing things, but to what end? Uh, have we decreased the amount of suffering in the world? Well, in some ways, yes, but in a lot of ways, no. Indeed. Uh, and that's just for ourselves, for other yes. living beings. I think we can uh, unanimously suggest no, we haven't. Yeah. Except maybe some viruses and bacteria and things. <laughs> well, I think maybe dogs are better off, but that's right. Well, yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah, domestic dogs have, don't have a bad life. It's a dog's life, after all. Yeah, we've almost created that species anyway. So. Yeah, yeah. So we've managed to reduce famine, war and plague. That's the other one that comes up because uh, mm -hmm. this book was written uh, six years ago mm -hmm. before the COVID times. Um so that's a good thing, but it's so recent that we can't be sure of its stability. Yeah. I mean, we might be just be going through a golden era of, of peace and, um, and um, things like that. Whether we have the wisdom to handle our newfound powers is certainly an open-ended question. Mm. And we also don't, don't seem to even know what we're trying to achieve, Hutto. We don't know what our goals are. We're very powerful, but we're as dis discontented and unhappy as we ever were. Indeed. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We've just jogged up the list a little. Yeah. And we were responsible. Uh, the last sentence in the book is quite a profound one. Is there anything more dangerous than dissatisfied and irresponsible gods who don't know what they want? There's an unanswerable question for you, Hutto. Indeed. Did you want to have a crack at that, actually? It's a very good question. and It's got distinct similarities to the questions which the Greeks themselves were asking, because they basically envisaged a whole bunch of almost childlike, powerful and irresponsible gods. They did. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, so you could ask what's changed in two and a half thousand years. Maybe the Greek gods are a, a metaphor for, for humans. I've never really thought of it that way before. I suppose that's quite obvious when you, when you think about it. 
would think we a lot of anthropomorphic projection went on in creating the Greek gods. Yeah, well, the god we sort of talk about today, yeah, he has anthropomorphic projections, but he uh, he tends to be an adult, doesn't he? Not a child. Much more so. Yes. <laughs> Zeus was still into becoming a swan and raping the ladies, which isn't really very highbrow godly activities. Yeah, well, he would say that, uh, you know, he got um, consent, but uh, <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> are you going to argue with Zeus? <laughs> Um, and that's it. That's the end of the book, Hutto. So um, I suppose I can hand over to you now because you wanted to uh, take over from here. So I'll sit back and just do nothing for the rest of the episode, I think. Right. Well, we'll we will disturb that happy <laughs> happy concept. Um, look, Harari's final words are are deep, and they lead into his next book, of course, Homo Deus, which looks more at the future of where humanity is going than where it's been. I, I, I suspect, and I don't know if this is true, but he started writing the last chapter, which was about the future, and he's like, oh my God, there's so much here. Yeah. But I'm think I, could, I think there's another book in this, and he's written another book, Homo Deus, which uh, I, I've, I've started, and I've read uh, the first few chapters of it. It's, right. very, it's a very good book, so right. uh, we'll get to that one day. We will we get to it one day, but we have uh, other... Big picture questions to look at. We're moving on to the ascent of money for our next book. We don't even understand the past and the present yet, Hutto, before we start taking on, take on the future. Indeed. Um, <laughs> now, what I'm leading into here is our concludium. And for I have not created the word concludium. The first time I came across it, across it is in um, Terry Pratchett's Going Postal. Okay. Um, Terry Pratchett is a wonderful author with all his Discworld series. He is... Unfortunately, dead and the lost of the world. Um, but in his concludium, uh, Lord Veterinary's clerks, um, in the space of one night, get out their bits of paper and move them around and talk with other clerks and all the rest of it, and reach the end conclusion that one of the establishment wealth banks was now completely broke. This concludium came about as a result of... Um, high financial misdemeanors, akin to Exxon and such like things. Right. Uh, all in the magical world of this world. Sounds like the Dutch East Indies Company. Uh, hello. Uh, there are similarities to all We know all about that in, stuff now. Indeed, we do. <laughs> um, so anyway, so that was the concluding end of going postal. But for us, our concludium is about weighing, evaluating and moving some bits of paper around, looking at the end of... Where we sit on sapiens. Are we going to have some financial misdemeanors in our concludium? We haven't now. That's the next book. (laughs) (laughs) I'll look forward to that. Okay. So we're therefore going to ask questions like, what do we think of sapiens? Is it a great book? Is it a good book? Is it merely an interesting book? Is it a flawed book? What's your your feelings about this? Well, my opinion about that, Haddo, is this, this would be one of the... I'm going to say one of the top three books that I've ever read. Right. Uh, I got a lot of insights from reading it and I've, I've taken a few notes on that. I've got I've taken one key insight from each chapter, yeah. which maybe we'll get to today. Um, and many of them were things that I've never, oh, A, I never knew, but B, I've never thought about them in, in quite the same way that I, I now think about them right. uh, since I've read this book. So I first discovered, uh, I don't think I've told this story in this podcast yet, maybe I have, um, but I discovered Harari back in about 2011 when he put a course up on Coursera, right. which was essentially this book in a in a university in, form, in yeah. a university lecture format, yeah. and it was almost identical, right? And uh, I remember put yeah, I think I have told this story. I remember putting a post on uh, Facebook to say, "Oh, this is exciting, you know, because I'm interested in big big history, if you like." And no one replied to my Facebook post, hello. So I was I just did it on my own, and I did the course, and I got my certificate. And uh, then Harari got famous when this book came out. It was a bestseller. And uh, I kind of feel like I, I own him. I, right. know, I feel like he owes me. Yep. yep. <laughs> My Facebook post started yep. it all. Uh, you, you were now, you, anyone concerned with marketing knows just how wonderful it is when you've got uh, you know, personal recommendations. From me. <laughs> yeah, so absolutely. He, he owes you a bit. <laughs> I do remember you know, when we first started talking years ago that you 
also recommended this book to me, of course. I, I, I have to do it numerous times. Meant numerous times. Yeah, you weren't interested. Eventually, eventually, I actually paid some attention, and you were right. Yes. Grief, as you are on many things. You know what? I, I, I knew that I loved it, but I must admit, I didn't have much confidence that you would, so I was very pleased when you got back to me and told me you are enjoying it. Yeah. Um, now, the other thing I'd say about the book is that it's... Um, it's very easy to read. I mean, it's a page turner. Yeah. You can read it really quickly. I mean, if you're really keen, you could read it in a night, really. Yeah. Um, so it's, easy, and it's got a lot of deep content in it, but it's an easy to read book. So, And that's the way I like to, yeah. to get my information. I don't like to think too hard. I, I prefer to be spoon-fed in simple ways. Look, this, this I think, is one of its characteristics as a great book. And I'm, I'm agreeing with everything Matt's saying here. Um, but he has got the style down to a very readable format, mm. considering that he is, in fact, dealing with vast topics. Mm. And it's very clear, too, that he has pruned so very heavily mm. to get it to that. Um, and he's also dealing with, perhaps, as what his second or third language as well. Yes. When you hear him speak, he's got a very strong accent. Right. You know, he's certainly not a native English speaker. Right. Um, he's an Israeli, I think we've mentioned yes. that before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, good point, mm. yes. And, of course, that... That flexibility of languages also helps expand your perspectives on it so does. many yeah, things. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're agreed that we think it's a great book. I would go as far as saying great book. Yeah, you put it in top three, which I think is, is pretty fantastic. Well, I haven't read as many books as you, and I don't think, hello, but it's in my top three. Well, I've read a lot of non-fiction stuff, in, uh, or fiction stuff. In terms of non-fiction, you've probably read a lot more than I have. Half read. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay. Is it original? Oh. Uh, that's a good one. I, 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 I haven't encountered something like it. Having said that, there's a famous history book out there by, a, I think he's a geologist, um, Jared Diamond, Guns, Jews yes, yes, and Steel. Yes. Yep. And I, I, I picked up Harari's book in a bookshop the other day and um, in his uh, foreword or what, what do you call it when you say you know say who you are and who you thank him? Yeah, it's not usually in the forward. Yeah, so. he uh, he thanks Jared Diamond and Guns, Jones and Steel for making him think about history in a different way. Right. So, yeah, it's certainly a big history book, and big history has become more popular in the last ten years. So, history for for you and me used to be European history and maybe some Australian yeah, history, yeah, America used to be. Then yeah. there was the world history kind of thing that's more of a global perspective. Yeah. And now big history. I mean, Harari's gone back. To the Big Bang, technically. I mean, he didn't spend a lot of time on that. But he, I've done a big history course uh, through the great courses. And it, right. it, it spends the first half of the uh, half of the course before you even get to life. Yes. It talks about the Big Bang in detail and how hydrogen and elements formed. So this big this big history movement is becoming a thing. So I don't know if that's a, a convoluted answer to your question. I would put this firmly in that kind of... In that yeah. kind of sphere. I have read um, Jared Diamond's The Third yeah. Chimpanzee. Oh, right. Yeah, on. not Gunstein. Yeah. 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 Um, and yes, Jared Diamond. I read The Naked Egg when it first came out, yes. which shows how old I am. Yeah. Um, but um, And that was, in a sense, the start of anthropology. It was certainly the start of my looking at the big pictures of life and where we sit in it. Yeah. And uh, Jared Diamond is one of the follow-up authors to where that started taking us all. And yeah. Um, yeah, um, yeah. These, I find this stuff wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I haven't read Guns, Germs and Steel, but I've seen it referenced so often in other courses and books that I've read that I almost don't want to read it because I feel like I kind of know it. Does, does that make sense? Yes, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm, I might be cheating myself, but uh, it's a big book and I don't know if I could be bothered. <laughs> right, okay. yeah, well, sometimes sometimes you can find the synopsis somewhere and figure that's enough. It usually isn't, but mm. uh, um, unfortunately we don't have time to read everything. It's so sad. Um, okay, well, you've answered my next question too. Mm. Um, in fact, you've answered two more questions. Gee, you're covering this well, Matt. Geez, I'll wrap it on, don't I? I may even have to give you some marks after <laughs> <laughs> Um I think we've both conveyed the fact that we enjoyed reading this. Yeah. Um, so, not only a factual book, not only opened up things to my mind, I could not have read it in one night, although the style is simple enough, I think it would have made my brain explode. Yeah, it would have been all nighter. Uh, I, I, I was taking in so many new yeah. ideas as part of this, and then I'd need the time to digest Yeah, you, you, you're a more thorough reader than me. I'm a quick reader, 
and I'll, I'll get insights and stuff and then I'll forget them the next day. Right. Whereas I think you, and, and part of why I'm doing this actually is to help me absorb yeah. it because I have to go through the chapter, take some yes. notes, then we talk about it. I yeah. then re-listen to the episode and by that time I've started, things start to sink in for me. Yes, um, but I've made the point before, look, speed reading, yeah, I can speed read newspaper articles, etc. but yeah. a book like this, yeah, I read a page and then I go back and I reread the page. It's not because I didn't read it right the first time. Yeah. I need the time to digest it yes. and say what it's saying. Yep. Yep. Um, and also he does do a very good job of making you rethink things. You know, he, he starts a chapter with the Romans were used to being defeated. And you say, huh? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, I guess they were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, so that sort of jogs you out of yourself and wakes you up so you can't nod off to it the way you can in some books. So we'll move on to what did we get out of this? Yep. You want me to... You can take something or I can jump in. What would you like? Well, I've got a whole lot of takeaways, as I said. So I've taken one key point out of each chapter. Right. Um, now, I think you wanted to drive this section, so do you, do you want to drive it and I'll just chip in where I've got... No, uh, look, I think... What do you want uh, me to drive it? I, I think shoot with what you got out of Chapter right. 1 and I'll try. Okay, in. so the very big takeaway from this book, which I wasn't even aware of, is that there's been three main revolutions that have shaped the course of human history. Right. And that's the Cognitive Revolution, which is not something I knew really anything about. Right. The Agricultural Revolution, which I, I, you know, I was aware of. Um, I think this book may, might have made me realise that it, it's debatable whether that was actually a good thing. I think traditionally we've always gone, oh, the Agricultural Revolution was a great thing and led to civilization and all that, yeah. but Harari probably makes you think about it differently. And the scientific revolution, I didn't realise the importance of the scientific revolution. I did, but I, 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 my headspace was about the industrial revolution, which right. is really just a spin-off from the, the bigger revolution, which was the scientific revolution. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I think that, that's really the theme of the book, right? That's how he's, he's organised it. It is. Um, now, I will come back to that later when we have a look at other people's criticisms of this book and how one might answer them. Yeah. Um, his division into three is one of them because there have been umpteen dozen histories created and they have a tendency to divide things into three. Yep. So we'll look at some of the comparators and talk about that. The, um, I agree. I hadn't got the cognitive revolution as clearly in my mind. And one of the things he starts with is he talks about hominids as being human, which is reasonable enough. Mm. But he's forced me to think about that, mm -hmm. and I've ended up saying, actually, I think when we talk about humans, we aren't talking about hominids necessarily. We aren't even talking about Homo sapiens, which, as he correctly says, Homo sapiens came on the scene and remained an animal of no great significance. Yes. The world did not suddenly change. Yeah, and I've always been a bit confused by that. Yeah, um, and so he's made me think about this cognitive revolution thing. Mm. Now, which, now, science has not entirely agreed on this. So there is, in fact, a great stepping point. But it certainly is clear that, you know, we got out of Africa, we spread out across the world. Yeah. And we got to Australia, which no one else had done. Yeah. I, I did some more work on looking at the genetic basis of this. The main candidate would seem to be the fox p2 gene which is essential in languages and other things in human beings in other words if there's something wrong with your fox p2 yes you get inhibited language development mm. um fox p2 actually plays a number of roles fox p2 is is not new it's a gene which binds a protein to other proteins and changes the way they develop so it's quite complicated it's part of epigenetics but it is interesting that we have a three amino acid difference within our fox p2 gene compared with mice right. who also suffer um, language problems mice which have had their fox p2 gene knocked out have problems talking with other mice and don't sheep as much and that yeah. sort of thing yeah. Um, and we have a two amino acid difference between our FOXP2 gene and chimpanzees. Right. Now, I don't think it's been fully established that 
there was a change that that change came about seventy thousand years ago, but I'm suspecting that it may have done. Yeah. There are a couple of other genes, but what the FOXP2 is essentially doing in the brain is it changes the way the brain connects with other areas in the brain. Mm. This, I think, is what has caused our developed nuanced language development. Yep. And I think it also played a role in such things like our connections with music. Because one of the things I do know is that even someone suffering from extreme Alzheimer's, when you sing a nursery rhyme to them that they learnt in their uh, in their childhood, you know, Mary had a little lamb, little lamb. They start to join in the song. Yep. The tune, the music, the words all come together and their memory is perfect again for that period of time. Yep. And it is also clear from scans we've done that when we do, when we're doing music, we connect more areas of the brain together than pretty much any other function we do. We connect mathematics with rhythm, with all this sort of thing. Right. So I think the cognitive revolution is probably connected to that genetic difference. Yep. I'd like to see it confirmed and established. Yeah. Which gets me back to something different, which is 2001, A Space Odyssey. Mm. Remember the monolith, mm. which was supposedly interacting with primitive humans and caused a change in our consciousness? Yes. I think it's brilliant, except it wasn't a monolith. One wonders if some aliens came down and changed our FOXP2 gene and it was a genetic change. Right. Just a thought, yeah. but interesting, yeah. very interesting. Okay. So the clincher for me about the importance of the cognitive revolution, which I didn't know before, was the fact that Homo sapiens had a crack at getting out of Africa mm -hmm. about thirty or 40,000 years before they actually did. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they were unsuccessful the first time and were successful the second time implies that there was some sort of change. Yes. Now, you know, we believe that that's probably a cognitive change, which really manifested, I think, through the flexibility of language and allowed us to cooperate in large groups. Yes. And the other thing which comes in answered some questions on core about what's our greatest invention and you and I talked about it and agreed that it was probably language. Yeah. But going on from that is another thing called stories. We developed the narrative. Mm. And you can't really tell stories until you've got a nuanced language. Yeah, as far right. as we know, not even dolphins tell stories. Yeah. Human beings, we tell stories. Yeah. And we love the narrative. Yep. And that's what then gives us things like legends of gods and shared belief systems and all this other stuff that comes with it. Yep. And I thought you did brilliantly well there because you've got a really important contribution to put in and you didn't interrupt me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I probably should have. <laughs> okay, yeah, we're, we're running way out of time. All right, so I've, I've yappered on about that fair enough. Um, Agricultural revolution, yes, I, I've seen other historians say that actually it was the Ice Ages and the need for food and stuff like that which drove uh, the Harari did mention that. He did, yes. Mm -hmm. um, because um, the question becomes, why, the question isn't why did it happen so early, the question really is why did it happen so late? Yes. And I just don't think there was many environments on earth that allowed it to happen until it actually did. Yeah. And it happened, started in the Middle East, of course, where they had an abundance of uh, grains and, and domesticated yeah. animals. And, and in fact, it happened in several places at once. Uh, well, the Middle East, I think, was first, but it had happened independently yes, in other places. Correct, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and again, the suggestion is that much of it was driven by climate change. Yeah. Um, so yeah. It was an idea waiting to happen, Hunter. Yes, yeah. That and we've true. been putting up with it ever since. Well, yes, and Harari raises the questions, you know, has it made anybody any happier? But that's, that's another story. Um, Okay, I thought you did a great job on that, so go into chapter two for us. <laughs> well, I mean, it's all tied in what we were talking about, but um, the importance of language once again and things like gossip yes. and stories that you've already mentioned, shared myths as the key to our ability to cooperate flexibly in large groups, which Harari denotes as the main reason or the reason why we dominate the globe and no other species Yes. Does. And I, you know, I can definitely see a connection between that and you know, the idea of sailing over the horizon to get to Australia. You have to put a lot of concepts together, share some values, you know, make a narrative of this that 
whole body of people. And you have to cooperate flexibly in large groups. You have to say there's a lion over the hill that's looking dangerous. I mean, that's not necessarily a myth. It's not just about myths. It's about being efficiently able to survive. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, as you say, the, the mammoth we can't see is the food for tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, other animals probably can't do that. I don't know. Okay, um... That was great. You're doing a great job here of, <laughs> of not leading, but leading. Um, give, give us chapter three. <laughs> so my main takeaway from chapter three, I've already mentioned as well, but the realisation that um, before the agricultural revolution, we probably were happier. Uh, and we certainly lived in heart, more in harmony with our biological natures. Yes. And we used to sit by the river and eat fish and yeah. have a lot of sex and only work four hours a day. Yeah. Uh, this was something which came out of the Naked Ape and then the Human Zoo by Desmond Morris, that, you know, we have created our world, but it's still like living in a zoo. Mm. Um, we, all our natural instincts were for the hunter-gatherer lifestyle thing we were doing, and now... We're constantly at war with our basic instincts. It yeah. leads to a stressful existence. Yeah, yeah, and, it does indeed. And it don't necessarily make us happy, but was Newton happy? Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> well, I care about my own happiness, I don't. Oh, yeah, you make that very clear. <laughs> You're doing a great job. Yeah, okay. Give us your take. Well, let me give you my next one, Hutto. So I'm an Australian, and I always was aware that uh, the first Australians got here. There's a debate, but yeah, you know, I usually say forty thousand years yeah. ago. Some people say sixty, whatever. Yeah. Um, but what I didn't realise was how momentous that event was. I thought it was momentous because we actually were able to cross some oceans. Yeah. But the reason it was really momentous was because for the first time in history, we were at the top of the food chain. Yes. That had never happened before. No. Right. So that that was it was huge, Hutto. It, it is huge, and so Australia prob- is important. We prom- <laughs> we probably proceeded to totally change Australia, and at yeah. this point, as you, see, you know, there is probably no better um, example or proof, if you like, evidence that at this stage we were no longer an animal of no great significance. Yeah, we were changing. We were everything. we were the we were the. The king of the jungle, as it were. We devastated Australia. Yeah. We, we changed it completely. Well, that was one of the main effects of, of us becoming the top of the food chain. It was the beginning of ecological disaster. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So not so good for the rest of the planet. Yeah. Give us chapter five. Well, we've, I think we've covered five and six a bit. So chapter five, my main takeaway. The AR, as I like to call it, agricultural revolution, yeah. made life worse for most humans, not yeah. better. Yeah. And number six. Once again, he, he elaborated on the importance of shared myths in building civilizations. Um, yeah. Living together in such large numbers is not natural to us mm-hmm. in any way, shape or form. Uh, and in order for us to be able to do it, we have to create, and this is, this is big, we have to create an imagined reality. Yes. <laughs> in order, otherwise, we wouldn't be able to do it. Now, I had no idea about that before I read this book. I thought we were living in reality, Hutto, but... You know, I was yeah. just living in the shared delusion. Well, yeah, okay. The other thing is we had to take a totally different view on time because as a hunter-gatherer, you hunt for today, you eat for today, you, every possession you've got you kind of have to carry with you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so you're living in the present. Yeah. Once you get to agriculture, of course, it's all about seasons and rain yeah. and putting stuff in storage to take you through the lean time. And it's about stress and anxiety, worrying about the future. That's correct. But you have to have a whole conceptual idea of time yes, and the you future, do. which is very Yeah, different. you do. I wonder, I wonder whether these caused any biological evolution in our brain. We probably haven't had time, have we? It's only been 10,000 years. But thinking about the world in a whole different way, you'd think it would have to have some biological uh, adaptation take place. But I suppose if it takes place over a million years that uh, we may not necessarily notice it. Correct. I mean, we, we have had some evolution of our digestive tract because hominids have been cooking their food for nearly Well, that's something years. perhaps we could mention. The discovery of fire, which was, what, a million years ago? Or? Uh, a million to... Somewhere between 1.2 and 800. So it wasn't done by Homo sapiens, but it was, uh, you know, well, not so much discovered, but controlled by other hominid species. Yeah. And that allowed us to digest our food better, shorten our digestive tract, and therefore less calories go to our digestive system and more to our brains, which was all important in developing language and becoming the humans that we know. And it also expands the rate of stuff you can eat, because stuff which is hard to digest in its seed form. A lot of vegetable matter is really hard to digest. That's right. And, you know, if you can cook it, you can boil it down, 
you can break it up more and, and yep. make it edible. Yeah. And sometimes you can also leach poisons out of it and stuff like that. Yep. Um, okay, all good stuff. And then we move... Well, living in cities, agriculture, revolution, etc., creates all sorts of problems, building armies... Living yeah, well, it's, it's, we've got to be careful not to conflate the agricultural revolution with the birth of civilization, because the birth of civilization happened about five thousand years after the agricultural revolution, and we haven't got to it yet, Hutto. Okay, <laughs> you're right. That you're, the agricultural revolution creates the foundation for civilization. Yes, but it's not quite the same thing. That's right. And it, it as you say, surprising how long it takes to get the basics in Yeah, that's right. It, it took 5,000 years in the Middle East, which is where it first happened, but it took less time than that in the Americas. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, one, you know, once they sort of discovered their agriculture, they were sort of building civilizations yeah. in a and, shorter period of time. And I guess the other thing we have to remember is that the agricultural revolution started somewhere in a small space, but actually it's only spread. It took, yeah. 2,000 years or something to actually spread yeah. and cover... Well, it also, it also was born independently too. It was yes. born independently in about four different places yeah. in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, so quite right. Civilization followed the agricultural revolution as a necessary... Agricultural revolution gave it a foundation, but it wasn't like you suddenly got civilization the moment you did some agriculture. So some thousands of years later, chapter 7. Well... I'm glad you mentioned it. I'm glad you mentioned civilization, hello. You've been talking about it for five minutes and we haven't <laughs> even got to it yet. It turns out the invention of writing was necessarily necessary to allow civilizations to grow larger. Indeed, yes. Um, something about the need to record things and partial scripts. Well, money, Lot money transactions in general, or well, e economic transactions, because money trans wasn't a thing yet. Exactly so. Economic yeah. transactions, um, money came as a development from that. But first of all, we had to record how much grain somebody had given us for store. And not long after that, we had Gil the Epic of Gilgamesh, had I? We did, mm. yes. Imagine, imagine writing the Epic of Gilgamesh on a bloody clay tablet <laughs> in cuneiform. <laughs> You'd we, want to be keen. We had the start of a written narrative, and now that's a huge stepping yeah. point. And we also talked about the importance of data about the data. Yes. Writing itself was useless without the knowing where the writing was stored. Metadata, yes, you know, I've got all these clay tablets, but which one was the right, that's right. one? And it actually stopped a lot of civilizations it from did. growing above a certain size. Yeah, until we got Google indexing, there was a big problem. <laughs> that's right. Okay, I... I I learned things there that I hadn't really thought about. I mean, I've spent half my life building systems and indexes and databases, etc. Um, but I've never really gone back to thinking about how it was right at the beginning and yeah. what caused the problem. Yeah. Move on, chapter eight. All right, so almost every society hasn't been fair. Mm. Uh, these imagined orders, because they are imagined orders, aren't yes, they? Yes, they are. Have winners... And losers. Yes. Uh, E.g., we have a caste system. We had the caste system in India. We've had racism uh, over the journey. Mm -hmm. We've had gender inequality in just about every society there's ever been. Indeed. Now we don't really know why we've we've had some of these things, but it turns out that we have. Yes, that's very important because we are a group social mammal. We get our support from the group, and. Therefore, justice is very important to us mm. because, you know, without justice, we can be tripped over, kicked out. You know, a friend in need is a friend forgotten and, and life mm. is bad. You made the important point regarding Cyrus, for example, that without him, there would have been no return of the exiles to Jerusalem. Yes, so in a sense he's the father, one of the fathers of the Abrahamic religions, which has changed the entire course of history. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Islam, is, Islam, Christianity and Judaism are 2.7 billion believers or something, roughly. Mm. And, that, and yes, if Cyrus hadn't allowed them to go back and write the book, it probably would never have happened. That's right. So that's important. But you had another point to make about Cyrus, which was perhaps well, more yeah, important. because so 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 I remembered this after we did our podcast, and I don't remember which number it was, but 
I raised the importance of Cyrus through history and we spent about five minutes talking about how he was the father of these religions, but which actually wasn't the point we were supposed to make, Hutto. We got a bit uh, confused because Cyrus was the first emperor who ruled on behalf of the ruled. So he considered himself not only to be the king of the Persians, but also the king of the Jews yeah. and the king of whoever else that he yeah. was the ruler of as well. And ever since Cyrus, empires were basically based on that, on that model. So, in a sense, Cyrus changed the world in two ways. Yes. And there's so many people that have done that. Indeed. So, we wanted to, we wanted to tip our cap to Cyrus. He's in my top ten of uh, influential humans of all time. Absolutely. And uh, I think I would agree that um, he deserves a place in the top ten on those two. Yeah. Um, because they are huge. And, you know, basically every empire ever since, well, the Incans were a bit out of, out of sync on this, but... Of the Asian, Middle East empires, European empires, mm. the idea that the ruled rule on behalf of the governed has taken root and yeah. been followed. Yes, it has. Good old Cyrus. Good old Cyrus. And he, he gets a lot of bad press, particularly since they started making films like The 300, etc. <laughs> and uh, it's completely out of place. He was actually... Well, you could argue that the Persian Empire was probably... A, they had a better model than the Greeks did because yes. the Persians didn't have slaves yeah. the Greeks did and, the, and, then, and then you watch these movies and they're going we're fighting for freedom mm. oh I don't think you are guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean all he was basically saying was acknowledge me and perhaps he wasn't even asking for a bit of taxes so happens about dare it. I say yeah. that the reason the Greeks get the good press is because they're European hello and not Asian well, that's part of it. It's also said that the winners write the history books. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> and the Greeks did a bit of that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so my next key takeaway, Hello, before you mm -hmm. ask me, is that there is a direction of history. Yes. And what is that direction of history, Huddy? Hello, Huddy? It's towards ever greater unification. And... Basically, the three main drivers of this unification throughout history have been money, empire, and religion. Yeah. Money, empire, and religion. Yeah. The... Money, war, and God. <laughs> the... I think the reason I like this book is it is a big picture book. He gives us a satellite view, and this... Arrow of history, direction of history, is one of the things that comes out of the satellite view. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was definitely one of my key takeaways from this book. Well, I remember when we first started recording, you were spending a lot of time talking about the arrow of history as progress. Yes. Which is actually a different thing. Say on. Oh, well, progress and unification are the same thing. So Harari is <laughs> not saying that progress is the arrow of history or really the point of history. If history has a point, it's for greater and greater unification. I think we, in our age, because we live in an age of great progress, we think that the arrow of history points towards ever greater complexity and progress, but that's not what Harari's um, Okay, yeah, you make a point that we tend to interpret where we've got to and where we're going to as being progress. So there is, in a sense, progress towards unification and globalisation. So yeah. you're kind of saying globalisation is the end goal of that progress. Yeah. But it's, you're quite right. We are perhaps interpreting progress in the light of what has happened. Yeah. Um, as Harari would say, yes, but is any, anybody actually any happier out of this? Yeah, I think if you ask the average punter on the street what the direction of history has been, they'd say ever greater progress. Yeah. And that's not what Harari is saying. He's yeah. saying that it's unification. Yeah. Hmm. And, they're, you know, they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing, that's correct. Um, they may be connected, but they're definitely not the same thing. Yeah. So we have the, the arrow of his, history, the direction of history towards ever greater unification. And then we went on to the role that money plays in all this too. We did indeed. So money is something that allows us to cooperate these days on a global scale. Uh, even though it's only a figment of our collective imagination, Hutto. Indeed. Um, I think one of the things... Yeah. Harari made me think about this whole collective ideas of shared values and shared narratives and all this sort of thing, um, shared belief systems. 
Um, but I think I like what you said about money. The interesting thing about money is I don't have to convince you that money has value. I yeah. only need to convince you that other people believe money has value. I mean, value. yeah, pe people, people are on board with money to a greater extent than religion or empire mm. as well. I mean, mm. money is the great unifier. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I was fascinated with the examples he gave. And he gives really good examples. Um, and, you know, the one where you had enemies still using the same money. You know, the Crusaders are printing gold coins with, with Islamic stuff. Yeah, on. And, he, and he also used the example of Osama bin Laden. I mean, yes. he disagreed with the Americans on empire and religious, but he was certainly happy to accept uh, US dollars. Yeah, nobody was fighting against the US dollar. No. It's uh, amazing, isn't mm. it? Good stuff. So the next thing we put the microscope under was empire. I didn't have any great key takeaway that I could come up with for that, any great inside huddo. So what I came up with was that nearly all of us, just about everybody on the planet, is the offspring of one empire or another. Yes. How, um, I don't know if that was news to us. but Well, I, I, I didn't, it wasn't news to me. I, I did like the examples and the clarity of his expression and thinking in, you know, empires unify us. We, we often demonise them, you know, in Star Wars it's always the Imperial Empire that's bad, you know, and the Republic is good sort of thing. But in point of fact, um, empires, whether it's Napoleon or Hitler or, or Rome or whatever, British Empire, do unify us and they leave behind stuff that's unified with common languages and, and sentiments, yep. etc. And money, of course. Um, and both... Empires and religions, which is the next chapter, people talk about them as being dividing influences, but the reality is that they're actually uniting influences. Yeah, well, that's right. And yeah, religion's obviously a great example yeah. of that. But um, yeah, Harari makes the point that whenever, whenever we're railing against an empire, the most recent empire, essentially all we're doing is claiming our loyalty to a previous long-forgotten empire. Yes. And um, he used India as a great example. Exactly. They've just and, gone from one... And the Chinese, and you know, we've all been through yeah. from one empire to another. And, and we're seeing the same thing with Brexit. You know, we're trying to get a European empire, and then Britain's going back to the British empire. Well, are they? Are they? Well, it's a, interesting. It's just a mess. It'd be interesting to, to see, it's interesting to see if Canada... Uh, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, maybe we'll form the global power block, uh, Hutto. It's certainly being muted. Yeah, I prefer to be sort of forgotten about on the corner of the world, though, to be <laughs> honest with you. Um, and the next one, religion. So he did an interesting thing with religion. He defined, re he, he didn't give, re in his definition of religion, he essentially grouped it together with other ideologies that don't have a supernatural yeah. component, and then he talked about how they're the same thing. Yeah. Um, his, his emphasis was on the shared beliefs rather than the mystical element. Yeah, the supernatural side yeah. of it. And he also made a point which I've never considered before, is that how animism, polytheism, monotheism have all been combined into yeah. a syncretic model yes. that we all basically follow, you know, regardless of whether you're a Catholic or whether you're a... Uh, whether you worship Zeus or whatever, we tend to use, we tend to bundle them all up into almost like a hybrid type type view yeah. of, of, of what uh, God his, is. His thing about the problem with sin and the way it creates problems for polytheism, but uh, monotheism can handle it, but then you've got a different problem. And so even when you've got monotheism, you go and do some of the polytheistic stuff as you well. You do, uh, it, yeah. It, and even some of the animists, I mean, if you, if you like to muck around having a seance with your friends or whatever, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people do that, like read the horoscopes. A lot of Christians read horoscopes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and now we've got a global world where East and West are meeting much more in our philosophies and religions. It, it really is interesting. It made me think about what uh, liberal humanism really sits within this picture because yeah. you know, here, liberal humanism is in one sense... Um, atheist it doesn't need a supernatural thing but it puts humanity on a pedestal as sacrosanct mm. uh, as if we have a soul and a divine spirit and this sort of thing yeah. so yeah there's there's issues to be sorted out down the track mm. keep moving on so we've talked about the arrow of history but the arrow of history is not the purpose of history right um it's just the way that it's, it's gone. Just a right? concept. It's a way, yeah, it's a, it's, and it's a concept that we can use to understand how history's gone. Mm -hmm. But history is not inevitable. 
it could have happened in any number of ways. Hello, I mean, we might have ended up in a in a history where unification. Uh, we went in the opposite direction from in, unification. Indeed, and it raised the question for me of to what extent is history the result of you know big overriding forces, and to what extent is it affected by individuals like Cyrus? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, good questions. Explore different historians say different things. I mean, yeah. my understanding was that most historians think that it's probably impersonal forces that shape history. But I've listened to historians say, so, oh, no, no, great men, uh, great men sort of affect history. Maybe maybe it's a combination of the two. Asiv explored this in fiction in his Foundation series, which remains a very good... Asimov. Asimov, yeah. yeah. Good work to explore it with. So then we, get to, then we got to the model of modern world, Hutto. Yes, finally. Where, in a sense, science, to some degree, took over from religion in, in, in the big three. Yes. So... The insight that Harari gave me into science was that it's not based on certainty. In fact, it's based on ignorance and, 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 and admittance of ignorance. I, that was one of the big takeaways of this book for me. Yeah, and its relationship with capitalism, i.e. money and imperialism, i.e. empire, which we've been speaking about, has actually been history's chief engine for the last 500 years. So religion drove, uh, you know, drove it up until 500 years ago, and yeah. science has been driving. Obviously, religion's still around, but, but, but science, in a sense, has replaced religion as one of the, the three main drivers in the last 500 years. Yeah, and this, the importance of admitting ignorance, it really drove home to me, you know, the Chinese basically sat there and did nothing while the Europeans were exploring the New World and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, and Columbus discovers the New World, but still doesn't recognise it as a continent. Yeah. It can't be a continent because it would have been in the Bible. Yeah. Um, Newton discovers gravity, but is still struggling with the mindset of an alchemist yeah. the last of the magicians. Yeah, I mean, they were, I mean, they were brainwashed Christians in a sense, weren't they? Well... Certainly, the, the paradigm in which your mental concepts are built, I hadn't realised just mm. how overwhelmingly important and powerful that is. Yeah. Uh, and I, uh, you know, another example you used was that the Chinese had fireworks for hundreds of yes, years and yes. never, never made gunpowder out of it. That's right, yeah. I mean, they had gunpowder, but, but they never made... Oh, yeah, sorry, they had gunpowder, never, never used it as a weapon. That's right, just made fireworks. At, mm. uh, um. So, the marriage of science and empire basically resulted in the European Age of Exploration, which is really how Europe went on yeah. to take over the rest of the globe, in a sense. And, that was... and now we live in a world where European culture is basically dominant, so we all drink Coca-Cola and wear blue jeans, hello, well, and listen to Justin Bieber. That's right, and we navigate our aircraft all using English. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, and you can pick up the next chapter as well because it, it fits into it, which is the uh, oh well, we, obviously the invention of banks and well, banks basically were a tool for providing credit. Yeah. So right. the invention of credit via the institution of banks yeah. uh, was crucial to the concept of growth, which all came from the scientific revolution because we we're like we admitted our ignorance and we we're like, hang on, there's a lot more out there than we know. Then we go and discover the new world. Oh, hang on. You know, these things can be fantastic. Oh, hang on. Let's start funding some of these things and, and, and try so, and get some growth and happening. And so we get this whole concept of belief in the future. Yeah. The future will be better than the past. Yeah. We will know more yeah. than the past. We have things to discover which will make it better. Yeah. And what I... I never really put those together. Well, we're modern men. We are not used to thinking of any differently. Every, yeah. Well, I can't say every person on the planet, but just about every person on, in the modern world thinks that way. Yes. Now, this is a this is a baby thought. This is only just this only happened and, yesterday, hello. <laughs> and yet, I also I never really put together the importance of the discovery of America and subsequently Australia within that pattern because you've got this idea that the things we don't know. And at the future, you know, we can come to know things. And then we discover all these massive lands we never knew about and we rape and pillage them and whatever. But, yeah. hey, you know, Isabella of Spain, did she ever get a return on her investments? Yeah. Um, and so that locked in the thinking. That provided the basis for this belief. Yeah. And we haven't looked back since then. Yeah. But it's been a miracle for Europe. Yeah. Just so capitalism and credit have led to that. Yeah, exactly. That, the, that world. Now, if 
America hadn't been there to be discovered, or America had been discovered earlier or something, would we have... Well, it still would have happened another way, although that does contradict what um, Harari says about history not being inevitable. So I was being a bit facetious then. But in my mind, in my limited modern mind, I think, oh, it would have happened anyway. Right, but yeah. that's that's what Harari stopped us before we got to this part. We said, yeah. don't make that mistake. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, there is a tie-in, of course, with navigation skills with discovering America. But they, you, might have well, had science, a, that's science. you might have had a climate change or something and the land bridge to America again or something. So it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, you're doing so well here. I'm going to let you lead on with... <laughs> so once we had the scientific revolution, the, 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 one of the big consequences of that was the Industrial Revolution, yep. which is uh, really pretty much the... Well, you could almost say we've gone past the industrial paradigm now, but it's sort of explained the last yep. 250 years uh, for sure. So that was born out of science and capitalism and resulted in an explosion in productivity yep. and also an associated explosion in consumerism. Yes. We're all good consumers now, hello. Indeed. Never used to be 500 years ago. It still hurts me to throw away my mother's six-inch wooden ruler, but it's really no That's because you're a medieval man in your mindset. You're you're a Columbus. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then we got to the present day, essentially. We're getting down to the end of the book, hello. Yeah. And he talked about, in chapter 18, he talked about the consequences of the Industrial Revolution on our, on our lives, on our modern lives. And there's been a lot of changes, varying from the collapse of family and the community yep. to the, the use of timepieces to control our lives, yep. to the rise of peace in our time with the mutually assured destruction paradigm. Yep. Um... I've certainly, his, his thing about the replacement of family by the state, as it were, the yeah. breakdown of community into different forms, I've been left thinking about that for a lot, because, you know, while I don't believe that it's all about happiness, I am left saying, can we ever really be happy with the, without the family and, and the local thing, you know, with the government? Filling in on everything. It's, it's a really good... Bring question. on the communist paradise, Hutto. Well, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, it, well, this I, is sort of what Marx is saying. Rid- Marx, I... Marx saw all this alienation and stuff during the Industrial yeah. Revolution, and he's like, no, nah, this isn't the road we need to be going down. Yeah, and now we've got the internet. Now, you know, is an internet community really the same thing as getting together oh, with your family over it's Christmas? definitely not. Of it's course not. it's not. Right. Yeah, I mean, and he talked about it. He talked about how we yeah. have substitute communities of Taylor Swift fans and football fans. Yes, yeah. And you've already mentioned that despite all of this, we're no happier. Well, and in fact, you could argue we're less happy. <laughs> yeah, well, look, we can have a whole thing on happiness and we'll probably cover it at some stage under psychology. I think we are a lot happier. Um, but we have also moved up Maslow's higher. Well, are we a lot happier or are we more safe and secure? Ah, now there you've hit a very good point, yeah. of course, because you've constantly got this trade-off between things like individual freedoms versus safety and security. Yeah, we're def- definitely not more safe and secure yeah. in the modern world. I, I think we have moved up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yeah. but we still find things to complain yeah. about. So we're on zero on the happiness scale we're using, whereas before we might have been a, a two on the happiness scale we were using. If we had a full belly, we were an eight. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's right. You know, when, when I was hungry and... Uh, I like having dentists with anaesthetic to fix my toothache. Um, yeah. Oh, you're more comfortable. You're more comfortable. I'm definitely more comfortable. <laughs> okay. Um, now, the last chapter yep. was basically, I think we tend to assume that Homo sapiens are the goal of evolution. And he talked about that in our science fiction yep. and the way we tend to view things. We think it's all about us, Hutto. We've got a bad case of that. Yeah, and, he's, uh, and his point is, look, we're probably or certainly maybe only a step yep. uh, in the evolutionary progress, not the end goal. Yeah. And um, uh, it's hard to argue with the, the reasoning there, really. It, it is. And look, we've got things like AI and cyborgs and genetic engineering and, and all sorts of things on the horizon. And and it's sort of happening. And, well. and, and it's yeah. very much happening. He yeah. goes on to talk about it in Homo Deus. And you know, one of my recurring themes is we are not going to make it to the end of the 21st century unless we actually sort out many of these Big picture questions we haven't progressed on for Which, two and a half thousand years. Well, I'll, I'll save you the suspense. We're not going to sort them out, are we? <laughs> well, I'm not sure that we're going to make it to the end of the 21st well, century either. That, so, that might be true. Yeah. 
Um, okay, all that is good. Now, in that process, you've covered... And that's all I've got, Hutto. Don't ask me any more questions. <laughs> <laughs> you've you've take, covered most of my stuff. I, re I reckon I might have covered all of them because uh, you've written down your key, key takeaways. I have one left. Oh, what did I miss? One of the things I got out of this is that curiosity is in fact not that much of an innate human characteristic. Yeah, you, you've mentioned that a few times. Yeah. yeah. Um, because in our day and age, we sort of think that we are a curious technological creature. Yeah. But the reality is that... We just want to sit by the river and eat fish. I'm always telling you this, Hutto. We were happily living in the idea of ignorant, of not being ignorant. Of not being ignorant, yeah. yeah. We yeah. have... Um, Tribes that are happy to stay on their island forever and don't want to talk to the world. Yep. We have tribes which were happy chasing monkeys through the jungles of the Amazon. You know, <laughs> well, it turns out they weren't that happy. They preferred just uh, living in uh, state-provided housing and getting well, their food given to them. Well, they, they figured that was fine too, but they had never before explored. You know, we think, of course you want to know what's over the horizon. Yeah. fact is... Humans have lived for millennia without doing anything about that question at all. Yeah, yeah. So that was obviously something that made you. Yeah. Think. So when he introduced, you know, the the science brought in the idea of ignorance and you know the whole basic thing of curiosity, it made me realise that it's not actually an innate part of humanity. Yeah. It's a bit like your Roman sentence: the Romans lost many battles, and yeah. then science is basically the admittance of ignorance. Yeah. It turns it on its head. Yeah. yeah. It does. So that, that was my one thing which you hadn't covered in your excellent oh, takeaways. I'm there. sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> did, you did great. Now, well, I think you've done a great job there of uh, helping me lead. Um, <laughs> Thanks. See, uh, now, while we're enamoured of this book, we think it's a great book, it gives us big picture, satellite overview, stuff we love, we have to perhaps pay some attention to the fact that not everybody's in agreement with that. What? Yeah, there are apparently people <laughs> oh, out there who... Oh, tell them they're dreaming, hello. <laughs> there are people out there who, who really don't think it's a great book, don't like it, even really? if you disagree with it. It's, and, it's, sorry to interrupt, but I've, uh, the, the few things I've read, I've heard people refer to it as the best book ever written. I haven't seen a lot of criticism out there, but I haven't, maybe I haven't spent right. a lot of time with okay. um, Look, yeah. there is lots and lots of praise for it. It's just become a, a bestseller, deservedly so, onto other books. Um, Harari himself is on the lecture circuit for... Good reasons, people want to He's living the you. dream, Hutto. Yeah, exactly so. Um, the, However, now, I could say that many of the people who don't like the book don't get it. We can dismiss them, you know, they just don't. Know. What I would but, assume no. is that, not that they didn't like the book, but they had some criticisms of the book. Ah, now, this is where we get to the more serious side. There are learned historians out there with... Mm valuable opinions and considerable expertise who yeah. also don't like this book, okay. don't like the way he's approached it. Right. And they have raised some criticism. Oh, no, so it's all been a waste of time. No, no. <laughs> I, but I do think that, you know, if we're going to say why we love the book, we, sh we should say, we should have a look at what they're saying and say why we don't have a problem with that. Well, maybe we do. Well, Fire maybe at we do. me. Okay. Well, one of the most common criticisms is that it's too broad spectrum. It's too much of... A satellite view. Right. Um, and what they say is, you know, from a satellite, the Himalayas just look like a thimble on the ground. Yeah. Unless you're looking at them from the ground, yeah. you can't see why it is that this is a barrier to invasion, yes. why it is that this gives birth to the greatest river on earth, the lifeblood of India and stuff like that. But it gives you a good insight into the fact that the earth is around the planet. Right. Keep, to <laughs> keep talking. It is exactly uh, right. Well, you, know, you want me to keep talking? I've already finished. <laughs> Well, okay. Uh, I think, for example, his thing about the arrow of history towards unification, that yes, empires come and go, and yes, each empire is different. Yeah. And yes, I agree that dumping in communism and liberal humanism and Nazism yeah. with Christianity and Hinduism is, yeah. is kind of a perhaps too much of an overarch. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps, I mean, as long as you can criticise it as well as look at it from what he's trying to say. I mean, yeah. to me, there's some 
profound truth in the comparison of those things. Yes. But yeah, you, you obviously, people aren't, look, in, in my opinion, people just aren't used to thinking that way and they kind of resent it when you want them to think about it in a different way. Yes. That's the way I see it, at least. Yeah. Um, look, obviously the minutia matter, obviously individuals play important roles in history, but that doesn't mean that there aren't broad forces which also need yeah. to be recognised and make things happen. And yeah. I, I like this book that it does that. I accept that historians who know a lot more of the detail than I ever will mm. can say, look, there was a lot more going on than he's just referred to here. And that's yeah. probably so, so Harari has given us three elegant mathematical equations to explain history. Yeah. And the Einsteins out there are saying, hang on, this only give us, gives us a really simplified version of history we need relativity to yes. really make sense of it and quantum physics. Yeah, so I, I like the simpler arguments. Yeah, they? okay. Yeah, I mean, you, there's some truth in saying that, yeah, okay, relativity gives us this wonderful broad picture. But, but nobody can understand it. <laughs> but, but hey, look, quantum mechanics is pretty important too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's true. And we still use Newton's equations for, for a lot of our, exactly. our engineering and stuff. Because they work so well in so many situations. Yeah. Um, Another one, for example, was the people who do look at things like the agricultural revolution yep. as a climate change event. Yes. Um, so they're saying uh, this really wasn't about, this was just about human beings responding to climate change. Mm. Um, the big driving force is the climate, and you can look at a lot of what has happened, particularly in human prehistory. Well, that's what Guns, Germs and Steels is all about. It talks, it really, he sets off, starts off to explain why do, you, why do Europeans dominate the world? Yeah. And it comes down to a bunch of geographical reasons. Geographical stuff. Yeah, yeah, which is what climate change is. And I, I think great evidence for that is the fact that the agricultural revolution started off and it appears four places yeah. completely separately. So it's certainly an idea waiting to happen. And we've been around 70,000 years, and it all happened at around the same time. Yeah. So why would that be, Hutto? Well, probably climate change had a fair bit to do with it. My understanding, though, was that Harari did mention that. He, no, Harari did give a reference to that, no right. question. Um, right. What we're looking at here is things like, so what do you consider to be the big drivers of? Yeah. And this gets us back into the third thing, which is not exactly a criticism, but it's something that we perhaps need to talk about. Yep. There have been many, many histories written. Yes. Um, and there's a tendency when they write these books to break them into threesomes. Right. Um, now, Harari picked up, you know, cognitive revolution, industrial... Um, agriculture. Agriculture, and then scientific revolution. Yeah. But, you know, why pick on those three? Yeah. I'll, just, I'll just read some of the ones we have okay. gone for. Um, yeah. Now, you know, back quite some time ago, this was uh, uh, Peter Watson's... Uh, no, sorry, uh, jo Joachim of Flore, Fiore, who I know nothing about, but he apparently lived in the late uh, 12th century. Oh, okay. Um, he heretically argued there were three great epochs were presided over by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Right. Um, Jean Baudin, he went for history of Oriental people, history of Mediterranean people, and then the history of the Northern people. Yep. Francis Bacon, he, he went for printing, gunpowder, and the magnet. Yep. And his uh, amanuensis, I've always wanted a reason to use that word. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, guns, germs, and steel is another three. Yeah. E exactly so, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, Tom, Thomas Hobbes, Bacon's amanuensis, he went for physics, psychology, and politics. Well, we spoke about physics, chemistry, biology early on. Although there's four, because then culture, history in the yep. form of culture changes yep. came up. So maybe that's a bad example. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, look, and, and, they, and so they go on geographical, biographical and psychological again. They don't, they don't all disagree. Um, oh, yeah, this was an interesting one. Um, John Nichols Caritat. You talked about the destruction of inequalities between nations, mm -hmm. the progress of equality within nations, yep. and the perfecting of mankind. And he figured we hadn't quite got to the last <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, a bit, I'm a bit dubious about that one. <laughs> yeah, but you're know, interesting ways of thinking. And, yeah. and so it went on. So, so, so your point here is that most, a lot of people have found that 
History, or are we talking about ideas, can be divided into three. History can be divided into three in a number of different ways. Yes, yeah. and it's interesting the way they pick them. And yeah. one, one of the things I tentatively suggest is that quite a lot of them take the big discoveries of their era and project. So we've just got into psychology, yeah. so we now look at the whole of history through the psychology, yeah. and they figure psychology is a big Or you can look at history through a feminist lens, or a, yeah. or a, or a um, homosexual lens. A absolutely. Black lens. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've, I've long said that you can look at history from the viewpoint of the haves versus the have-nots. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's Karl Marx, that's really what he's yeah, saying. Yeah. So, next, I guess what I'm saying here is, how do we feel about Harari is picking on the three he did. Yeah, I, I look. I, I suppose at the end of the day, they're just they're just constructions to help us simplify our thinking. Mm. And I, I found them very useful. It's really a matter of whether they're useful or not. Exactly. And I found them very useful. And if the ones you read, admittedly, I haven't explored all the ones you've read, but I like it. I like the three he used better than any of the ones that I just heard. Right. But that's without knowing. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd have to read their books. Yes. And maybe yeah. Quite. Um, yeah. Look, I. I absolutely agree with you. As far as I'm concerned, you split things into categories to be useful. Yeah. And this is what I talk about AI. I say some definitions are not useful and some are. Yeah. Um, usefulness is the driver. Yeah. It's funny how tripartite just seems to keep coming up. It, it is interesting. There are one or two exceptions to it, but yeah. generally they've, they've all gone for the, yeah. the three times. I mean, I think the big tripartite is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah. you know, that's the one I, I keep uh, thinking I figured of. that one would sell well to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's... I mean, it's, it's one that's being used, and, um, you know, it's another example of, in a sense... The idea of God has been split into a tripartite. Maybe our brains work in parts of three or something. Is three the magic number, Hutto? We'll have to do a numerology uh, series. It, it, <laughs> it sounds like that might be the case. However, I agree with you. You know, people can criticise it. People can say it's old and hackneyed, or you know, why do we need another threesome or whatever? But the fact is, I thought his categories were also useful. Yeah. Um, Yes, they come, if you like, out of our current understanding. They're of the age. Yeah. But to some extent, he's also helping to define the age. I think this book has progressed us another step in our understanding of humanity and history. Yeah, I feel like I know everything now. Probably don't need to do any more books. Okay, okay. So the ascent, the ascent of money is now cast into the dustbin as unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> well, we learned all about money in the... We had one chapter on money. That's all we need. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's right. all about yeah. growth, Hutto. That's all you need yeah, to know. Growth and belief in the future. Yeah. Um, I think at this stage, our concludium is about... Concluded. Concluded. Well, all right, good. So I shall see you on the flip-flop mm. for the ascent of money. Yes, series two coming your way. At a podcasting at service a near you. I should see you on the flip flop. On the flip flop. Yay! <laughs>